Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of March 12th, 2018. On this week's show, we'll be joined by Slate's Ben Mathis-Lilly to discuss how to maximize your enjoyment of the NCAA tournament during a period in world history when enjoying the NCAA tournament seems kind of hypocritical. But don't worry, we'll figure it out together. Our colleague Jim Newell will also be here to talk about Tiger Woods' almost triumphant return to professional golf. And ESPN's Kevin Arnovitz will help us assess the Raptors and the Rockets, who, go figure, are the teams with the best records in the NBA's Eastern and Western conferences. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. It's good to be back together. I know. That was the first time ever that Hang Up and Listen was uh, hosted by someone other than you, me, or Mike Pesca, in case you've forgotten him. Um, I've been storing up my takes, so I've got like, I've got a bit, at least like four this week, as opposed to my usual zero. Really? If you take one week off, you multiply your takes by <laughs> an ex- infinite number? It's exponential. Exponential take uh, multiplication. Let us start with the NCAA tournament. I'm always excited for March basketball. Uh, you got the CBI, which I'm excited about. Um, some of the best individual sports moments of my lifetime are March Madness moments. The whole framework of the tournament is fantastic. Lots of games at the same time. They're all on TV for watching by me. But the NCAA basketball tournament is also a very bad thing because it's the very goodness of the tournament that allows the very badness of big-time college sports to exist. Between 2010 and 2032, CBS and Turner are paying $19.6 billion to televise these games because you and I like to watch these games. If we didn't watch, then this rotten system in which some of these billions are going to the players in the form of scholarships, but none of the billions are going to the players in the form of cash money, uh, the system would have to change. But also, if we didn't watch them, we wouldn't get to see awesome buzzer beaters. And I deserve awesome buzzer beaters after all I've been through. Joining us now is our chief hypocrisy correspondent, Ben Mathis-Lilly who will throw his whole entertainment system in the ocean as a symbolic rejection of everything the NCAA stands for, and will then jump in the ocean to watch Michigan's first-round game against Montana at 9.50 p.m. Eastern on Thursday night. Hello, Ben. It's a complicated plan, but I'm, I'm committed to it. <laughs> Good thing Ben has the waterproof TV. The scuba gear has been rented. Um, John Beeline endorsed uh, approach to watching the first round of the NCAA tournament. Um, ben, as you noted... In a piece we published on Slate on Sunday, the recent FBI investigation into players getting paid under the table has been kind of a precipitating event broadly for people like LeBron James, people like NBA Commissioner Adam Silver, people like Barack Obama to say that the NCAA system is not sustainable, that amateurism is broken. But I kind of call bullshit 
on that because as long as we continue to watch the tournament, as long as the tournament continues to be such an amazing and successful product, I think the NCAA tournament is sustainable. Is that the right or wrong way to think about this? Ah, I think that's the right way to think about it. I mean, uh, I, I'm gonna—I'm guessing that Barack Obama, who famously filled out uh, March Madness bracket, um, I think every year he was president with uh, you know on ESPN, is going to be watching the tournament. Uh, I would guess LeBron James, big basketball fan, is probably going to catch it, uh, and uh, I'm pretty sure Adam Silver is going to probably check out uh, the players. A lot of the players who are going to be in his league next year, uh, you know. So am I, <laughs> having been the one who wrote that article, and and so are you guys. So. So I think you're right. Uh, you know, all of us, uh, you, me, Stefan, LeBron, uh, p- you <laughs> know, the peers, our peer group, uh, you know, we may agree um, this is not a sustainable model. It's not a fair model, but we are going to support it. We're going to support it by watching the games. Uh, I went to a Big Ten tournament game, paid for my tickets uh, in the lead up to March Madness. Uh you know, I have my Michigan gear, uh, and uh, I'll be watching, you know, on TV and online. So it's all, that's a whole funneling back to the uh, NCAA executives and, and ESPN and CBS, uh, ESPN and CBS, uh, I guess, for March Madness, CBS, TBS. Uh, so it's all going to them, and it's not going to the players. I want to call bullshit even further. I think that President Barack Obama was fully aware that players <laughs> were receiving some sort of extra judicial payment while he was filling out (laughs) his bracket on ESPN. This is no shock to anybody. And then this is the weirdest part of the last two weeks or months with this uh, FBI thing. It's that nothing has changed here. It's not like suddenly Adidas realized that, oh, if we can pay some of these kids, we'll have a better chance of signing them if they become superstars when it's time for them to go to the NBA. Or, and it's not like Andy Miller Sports Agency realized had the light bulb went off and discovered that if we can find a way to funnel some money to a few kids, we'll have a better chance of signing them when they're ready to declare for the draft. So this is all bullshit. This whole conversation is bullshit. We have been aware of the hypocrisy of rooting for our schools and watching this tournament since this tournament was created almost. Well, it- I would I would go even further than you're going further, sir. Um, it's not <laughs> only that nothing has changed as far as what's going on. Um, it's that it's worse. We're pretending that um, we're like more interested or more engaged in the fact that these payments are going on. But like everything in the world, a thing is a big story for a day, and then we forget about it. Like the story about that ESPN had that has now been called into question about Sean Miller, the Arizona coach, being caught on an FBI wiretap saying he was going to pay $100,000 for DeAndre Ayton to secure him coming to Arizona, DeAndre Ayton being the best player in college basketball, probably the number one pick in the NBA draft, and a guy who could conceivably lead Arizona to a national championship. You know, the day that that story comes out, you have people like, you know, Jay Billis and others on ESPN essentially saying that Arizona is going to be like nuked into another planet, that Sean Miller is never going to work again, that Arizona is never going to make the tournament. And now here we are two weeks later, they're in the tournament. Hey, they shouldn't have been a four seed. (laughs) They should have been on the two or three line, guys. I mean, I guess, Ben, that would be different if we actually had... 
Sean Miller on the wiretap and we are listening to it. It's like anything else. If there's like video or audio evidence, right. it totally changes it. But it's, remar- it's remarkable to me how quickly that story, which was going to change everything, went to changing nothing. It was like within 72 hours. Yeah, I mean, the, I I think this was in a CBS uh, article I was reading. It could, it could have been somewhere else, but I think it was a CBS uh, uh, sports article by Matt Norlander. Uh, someone pointing out um, how many how many schools uh, I think Michigan State with Miles Bridges, uh, Arizona with Aiton, uh, and several others who uh, whose players were named in uh, in in one of the big Yahoo or ESPN reports within a day claimed to have thoroughly researched their eligibility and completely cleared them in which and you know I, as I always have a caveat here I, I have no problem with these players playing uh, I don't think I don't want them suspended uh, but the idea that there really was a thorough investigation that you know they, they tracked down all the documents and interviewed the witnesses and they happened to do it you know, in, in, you know, what, 10 hours, uh, just to make sure these guys were eligible. I mean, it's insane. It's, it's ridiculous, uh, but it worked, you know, it's like I mean, three dimensional kabuki, like everyone is pretending to do stuff and no one's <laughs> yeah, doing, no anything. doing anything. Right. At least, you know, you sort of took a shot at Jay Billis a little earlier, but at least Jay Billis speaks out against this system. It's true. At That's least right. Jay Billis says that it's corrupt and it's a fraud and we should pay the players. Wait, I mean, at least Jay Billis. This. But wait, the thing I love about Jay Billis, I was watching some of the ESPN coverage yesterday today is he's like equally outraged about everything yes. that in the world. Like he's correctly outraged about the NCA, but he's like also outraged about the committee. Like, you know, if you're going to try to send a message, if you're not going to pick people based on their resume, if you're going to do it to send a message, I'm like, whoa, Jay Billis is like uh, a very performatively angry person, but I respect He's that. a man of conviction. But there are actual real tournament, I was going to say real world, but it's really real tournament impacts to, uh, um, from the FBI investigation. Louisville, USC, Oklahoma State were not selected. Oh, my God. Is there a conspiracy here? Were they left out? Does that even matter? I mean, who gives a shit if that Louisville's seems like not bu- in the tournament? Well, that seems like bullshit. It like- seems like a little bit of bullshit, but Louisville's head coach is saying that, you know, we, we should be in. And then so the LA Daily News reported that two coaches believe that USC didn't get in because of the FBI investigation. That's I don't I don't, you don't buy, buy that. It? Well, if you and look at if you look at bracketmatrix.com, which I do, which is the the wisdom of the crowds bracketology site that lists like, you know, every uh everyone who fills out uh, a a prediction, Louisville and Oklahoma State were both like way out. Like there was no sense among the crowd that they were going to get in. USC was like one of the vi- the very last teams that was going to be selected, but it's like entirely logical that they didn't make it. I think the only team they beat all year that's in the tournament is New Mexico State. I could be getting that wrong, but I think I saw that somewhere. Um, but I do like this is the like convergence of the like Jay J- Billis equally outraged <laughs> about everything. Like this is the one spot in the Venn diagram yes. where it's like where the like uh, Jay Billis, like corkboard with the strings, kind of uh, comes together. The conspiracy against Louisville uh, apparently started um, at the start of the conference schedule, forcing them to not have a winning record in the conference. <laughs> yeah, forcing them a very to lose deep... by forcing them to lose <laughs> to Virginia by seventeen. <laughs> it was a deep in the, in conspiracy the tournament. Yeah. So the my annual uh, plea to the committee, where I get. Uh, equally outraged about uh, 
them leaving St. Mary's out as I do about the players not being paid is that for all of the like analytical discussion, and I'm usually like Mr. Analytics are are good um, around like that is it's it's a a very catchy nickname. you know, I understand. I understand that a team like Oklahoma plays a really strong schedule and has like strong, uh, you know, sched- schedule strength and RPI and whatever other metrics because of that. But I think the argument to put in teams like St. Mary's and Middle Tennessee that don't play these strong schedules is that we don't know how good they are, and the tournament is. Um, on some level, you know, the the goal of it is to determine who the best team in the country is or who the best four teams in the country are. Um, and we know that Oklahoma um, and these other teams that have losing conference records, I think we know with certainty that they're not going to make it <sighs> all that far in the tournament because they've played tournament-level teams and just r- continually and repeatedly lost to them. Whereas with somebody like St. Mary's, who has the ability to beat Gonzaga, but just hasn't played that many other teams, like maybe they could make it to the Final Four. We just don't know. And it seems like it would be more interesting to find out how good a team like that is versus just watching Oklahoma lose again. And it also makes us feel a little bit better, too, because I can see rooting for St. Mary's and not thinking about the FBI investigation, whereas... Oh, come on. (laughs) That is so... you just ruined my good point. I'll Saint let Mary's you continue. St. Mary's could be just as dirty as anyone else. I was, I was being They get all their players from Australia, I which is a former penal colony. Facetious. But there is that feeling of, look, when we start rooting for mid-majors or non-popular teams or we bring up the conspiracy that Syracuse shouldn't be in, but some mid-major should, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the big programs that generate the most revenue and therefore we feel the worst about. We know that they are engaging in in worse behavior. Whether St. Mary's is or isn't is beside the point. We look at the they name. They probably make and more money if you go to Arizona than if you go to St. Mary's. Like if you're DeAndre Ayton, it's like going to Arizona is better yeah. better for you. Agreed. He should go to Arizona. Hundred thousand dollars is like one tenth of what he probably deserved. Um, do you have any actual basketball related takes, Ben, that you want to uh, share with us? Oh, I mean, do you want me to talk about how Michigan should have had the the two seed in Detroit instead of Michigan State after a two and zero record this season against Michigan State, two double digit victories? I hesitate to to say, but <laughs> I think too open ended a question for him. I Josh. think we should probably. I, th- I think we should probably rotate to Stefan and the Penn Quakers because if <laughs> anyone, if any team in this tournament has a beef about their seeding, it's Penn. Well, I th- I think of our of our kind of um, uh, personal. Rooting interests here, Stefan's has a more of a uh, national flavor because the fact that Penn was underseeded, which everyone seems to agree on and is a, a 16 seed, means that we have the best chance, I think, maybe in decades, maybe ever, maybe ever. to have a 16 beat a one. In the men's um, tournament. It's happened in the men's tournament once. Yeah, the Harvard over Stanford. Um, I think I think I saw that if you go by the Ken Palm rating, uh, you know, since those have been available, it is the it is the best uh, matchup. 
Yeah, yeah. Penn was uh, ranked 127 in Ken Palm. All the 16s, three 15s, and a 14 had lower Ken Palm rankings than the Quakers. Um, they're even like in the RPI, which we all hate, they were like 109 or something. Um, so it makes no sense. And in the 1 to 68 ranking that the NCA committee did, they were 64th. So one game from having to play in a play in the Quakers were 23 and eight. They went 12 and two in the Ivy League. They won their little mini tournament. Yeah, they did it at home at the Palestra. But where are you going to play the Ivy League tournament? You're going to play it in the Palestra. And they're not <laughs> bad. I mean, they're not going to they probably wouldn't win as a 13 or a 14 either. Um, and in some ways, you could argue that, yeah, there's now some legitimate excitement if Penn can prevent Kansas from showing up or at least prevent them from shooting a lot of threes, which Penn is pretty good at doing, and Penn can make a lot of threes, which they're pretty good at doing. It could be close, and Ivy League teams have traditionally played close games um, in the majority of NCAA games. I love, I love how this is entirely Penn-focused. I think yes. if a number one seed is going to go down, that number one seed has to be like not historically great and not have a good game, and I think Kansas fits in both of those, um, both of those categories. I mean, Oklahoma State, who did not have a particularly good year, like their entire at-large candidacy, this being a team that didn't make the tournament, was based on the fact that they beat Kansas twice. Kansas also lost to Washington. I mean, this is a very weak resume for a team with a number one seed. Like Kansas seems to have some sort of like um, you know mind trick that they are able to play on the Big Twelve every year, where they just never <laughs> lose that conference, but. This is not a his- historically a very talented Kansas team. Um, and so I think that's a big reason why this upset could happen. It's 11% chance, according to Ken Pomeroy, which is really high for – Wow. You know, that's, it's, it's, usually, it's usually around 16. like 1% yeah. for a 16. We have, we have guaranteed, however, by talking about it, that, that Kansas will have a, about a 45-point lead yeah. in the first 10 minutes just yeah. um, by hyping it up. That's also possible. So uh, – Maybe DeAndre Aiden is the place to end the conversation. He and Trey Young of Oklahoma did make it, so I'll be excited to watch him. Um, are probably the the players who uh, are going to be the most fun and interesting to watch. I guess Duke has Marvin Bagley as well. Um, Michigan State with Miles Bridges, but I think Aiden is just this like fascinating character as like kind of all th- has three characteristics: like best player in the tournament probably going to be the number one pick in the NBA draft and best player and number one pick aren't always the same. And also has come to like symbolize this, um, you know, this moment in college basketball where the entire model is in question. Like this is a lot for one player to like symbolize, but he's a very large human being. So I think he can handle it. I mean, it would be, if you want to talk about heightening the contradictions (laughs) that could possibly lead to the collapse of the amateurism model, Aiton, hoisting the trophy would be about as good as it gets uh, after what's happened. Oh, and it, right. Let's take, so now let's bring it full circle to your piece, Ben, and why, how it becomes okay to watch the tournament and care about it. I think that's where, what you want to root for. I mean, if you are a sentient NCAA hater and you believe that the amateurism model is a sham, then you should want Sean Miller and DeAndre Ayton standing up there shaking Jim Nance's hand and being showered in confetti. Right. Um, I, I, we should say probably that they both denied that they participated in this. 
what was reported by ESPN. Well, good, journal, good being a journalist. Good being ben. a journalist. But, but what <laughs> we should then really hope for is that they're standing up there being showered by confetti and they, in unison, say, we did it. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> Freighted with double meaning. I mean, just last last thought is that, you know, back to the idea that nothing changes, Shabazz Napier, when UConn won the championship, saying in front of an audience of millions that, you know, he didn't have enough money to eat, you would think that that would have changed minds or would have changed um, behavior. Well, it didn't lead to them giving them a larger meal stipend. I mean, it just just (laughs) went away. Like, people forget that 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 happened. And to the extent that change happened, it was very minor change within the system. Like, the system always wins. Ben Mathis Lilly, thank you for propping up the system for (laughs) My pleasure. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to Tiger Woods, I want to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, I'm going to talk to Stefan about the greatest triumph of his Scrabble career, his recent victory over two-time national champ David Gibson. If you want to hear about Stefan's tile-based glory, join Slate Plus. Just $35 a year. If you do, you can get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. After Tiger Woods blew another birdie opportunity on Sunday at the Valspar Championship in Florida, I had to look up Valspar, so I guess that was money well spent by Valspar. I emailed Josh and our next guest, Slate Golf Guy Jim Newell, the following, he's putting like shit. A few minutes later, this happened. Are you serious? Are you serious? There's a little of that old tiger tiger magic. And a little rabbit out of the hat, Raj. Yeah. Nice little smile. A wry little smile there. This crowd has been like a volcano waiting to erupt. Like a volcano waiting to erupt. Yes, that was some asshole shouting Baba Booey as Tiger Woods drained a 44-foot pot on the 17th hole to pull within one stroke of the lead. It was not meant to be. Woods finished one stroke behind the winner, Paul Casey, but Tiger's back. And I don't just mean the four surgeries and fused bones. Jim Newell, welcome to the program. Hi, good to be here. Tiger's 42 years old. He certainly looks like it. That's a big-ass bald spot on the back of his head. And he's been boy who cried wolfing about how it's a process and he's making progress for what seems like years now. I guess it doesn't seem like years because it is years. So here's the question America wants answered by you, Jim. Is Tiger Woods actually back? Yes. He was a, a he got second place in a tournament. I mean, as long <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're playing for is yeah, the second, second place second. trophy. Yeah. But I mean, that's the best. I think that's the best finish he's had in five years. The last time he was anywhere close to contention uh, b- before the Honda Classic, which was two weeks ago, it was in August of 2015 at the Wyndham, 
where he finished at 10th place or something. And that's the last time people remember him really being in contention on a Sunday. And so this wasn't a false flag is what you're saying. No. I mean, the thing is he just hasn't been healthy for more than three weeks at a time since then. So, you know, you look at his like he had an, a, you know, aborted comeback at the end of uh, 2015, 2016. You know, he played in a couple tournaments before his back started acting up again. So he really – I mean, he does get made fun of so much for – you know, the process and getting in reps and getting his feels back, as he likes to say. Uh, I, have a, I have a quick note on that. Yeah. I, the reason that I think the Tiger is back is that when he's – during all of these, like, fake comebacks and when he's not playing really well, the way that he would assess his play, he would use all these, like, fake words that don't even exist. He would talk about, like – Oh, it's like the grain. I, you know, I, all the grains were wrong, or it's like my trage is off. And yeah. like after this round, he just like sounded like trage a normal is, person. He was just like, yeah, I was just a little off today. Like he didn't need to develop a new vocabulary to explain yeah. why he sucked. It was just like, yeah, well, was, my irons were a little off. He was off. getting very golfy. I mean, his trage was back, by the way. <laughs> the trage on the, some of those shots was amazing. <laughs> Those little Traj. low risers that then just like stop on a yeah. dime on the green. Traj. Great traj. Yeah. Traj yeah. is a good no, word. No, traj was awesome. I'm going to add to the dictionary. Yeah. I mean, if you look at all of the like advanced fancy golf nerd stats, which I'm sure Jim does, um, Justin Ray of the Golf Channel noted that there are only four players on the tour um, this year that are um, in the top 30 in strokes gained tee to green and strokes gained putting, which basically is like golfers that are good at like getting into the green and good at putting and the top the people that are good at both those things this year dustin johnson phil mickelson tiger woods and some guy i haven't heard of yeah alex norin i think he's i think he's 11th now he has enough stats on the year now to finally be included in the you know pj tour wide stats i think he's 11th in strokes gain total and that's with some pretty terrible driving so every other aspect of the game must be pretty sharp to make up for it and I think his driving was actually pretty okay at the Valspar. I think he was in the top 20. And if he's in the top 20, then he's going to be in the top five of a tournament probably just because everything else is so sharp. But, I mean, it just shows that if you, if you can stay healthy for longer than, you know, a few weeks at a time, he can get back to it. It's just a matter hopefully he will stay healthy now and that fuse back, you know, is, is durable enough. Uh, I can see that you're just, like, getting really worried. Like you're, <laughs> I know. I'm the, so worried. The tone of your voice there just got – Got a little. It got a little dark there for a second. So, Stefan, the thing that I found really upsetting about the way that NBC broadcast the tournament is that Brant Snedeker was partnered with Tiger and just did. All, he was awful. But a bad day. As soon as a guy does really badly and falls off the leaderboard, they just like exile him oh, from the broadcast. It's totally like you know a Kremlin photo from the Soviet era. He is out. He's airbrushed. But the thing is, like, it seemed like Tiger was, like, doing really badly just because he couldn't make these putts. But he was, like, doing really well compared to Brant Snedeker. Like, I feel like you need the, like, real, the guy having the, like, super shitty day to remind the viewer of, like, what bad really looks like. Like, like that was, like, a, a totally, like, decent round by Tiger. He just didn't putt well. Yeah, but the bad has to be – it's got to be really bad for you to want to watch it. You know, and that's why I had suggested that there should be kind of a red zone channel for bad golf. Somebody throws one in the creek. We're cutting right to that shot show in the replay, yeah. watching him take idea. off his shoes and, and get down in there to get the ball out. I mean, it was really funny to watch uh, the beginning of the coverage on Sunday because for the first three rounds, this guy, Corey Connors, who is, you know, no one's ever heard of him before. He was leading the tournament. 
And people expected him to fade on Sunday, but he made a bogey on hole number one. And you could see the TV producers like, great, we do not ever have to show, <laughs> show this, this guy, guy again. again. But he got back into it, right? He Because he when he got back, he, helps... he got back to like eight under yeah. and to tie Woods. And it was like, I hadn't been watching until, you know, until they, we were, they had made the turn. And it was like, wait, where'd this guy come from? Who's he? But yeah, I, I mean, he ended up, you know, having a pretty bad day. Snedeker was, yeah, seven over. And I was really surprised that Justin Rose, who was the best player in the field, I think, and is just, a, I mean, a, a, a really excellent player. I was surprised that he fell off towards the end because I was figuring he was the biggest threat to Tiger and so wanted him to fail, you know, a lot. I was screaming for him to fail at the TV so that he would not be yeah. Tiger. And he did fail, but unfortunately Tiger didn't make enough putts. So you're Tiger rooting here. I mean, is that oh, yeah. pure Tiger rooting or is it like the rest of us? Who were like, oh wait, Tiger Woods is in you know at the top of the leaderboard in a in a golf tournament. I think I will turn that on now. I haven't watched much golf. I'll turn it on because we're talking about it. I'll turn it on for the for the majors. Um, but I, I turned on golf yesterday. I recorded it and just fast forwarded through all the golfers who weren't Tiger. That's the best that's, way to do it. That's the way I watch golf. Yeah, but I do think it's interesting that like if you're rooting for Tiger, it also means like actively rooting against the other players. It makes it more fun. Yeah. No, I, I wanted Tiger to win. I've always been a Tiger fan, and now he's back. I want him to win. I mean, I actually am happy. I If he wasn't going to win, I'm happy that Paul Casey did win because he's also a really good player who hasn't gotten a win in a while. But, you know, I mean, what I was it wasn't Tiger's best round, but it wasn't, you know, when you think of a bad Tiger round, like a few weeks ago, a bad Tiger round would have just been like hitting every ball out of bounds. This was sort of a controlled Bad round. I mean, his. Well, remember when this was one of those off. frustrating rounds? Like, yeah, it was just the his iron shots just weren't close enough to right. give him a legitimate opportunity to birdie. Right, but it wasn't on a hole meltdown after hole on the back nine. No, yeah. it was no meltdown at all. And it does raise the point that you know we watched, and Tiger makes it compelling. Tiger makes you want to turn on the television, and Tiger on eighteen on the green with a chance to tie or win a tournament is still really something to watch. And yeah. I, I got to say that putt on 17, like for all the excitement that the the broadcasters gave it, that was like a legit awesome sports yeah. moment. Like they could have made it like 10 times They could have hyped more, it, yeah. More they waited hyped. a long time to, to, for it the crowd incredible. It was incredible. It was, although it just made me more nervous because I was preparing <laughs> to, you know, check out for the rest of the day. Like he wasn't going to win. And then I had to watch on pins and needles – Number 18. Well, it was the first time you've ever felt alive in your whole life. That must have been, that At must least since the last time Tiger was in contention. That yeah. must have been stressful <laughs> for you. Well, remember, like, there were, like, people with, like, legit takes a few years ago that were not not even based around Tiger's health. They were based around he has the yips and can't chip anymore right. and, like, has no short game. And it seems like that isn't an issue anymore. Well, there have been so many bad Tiger takes. Like, it's all, I mean, it's all his health. I mean, there was, it started in, you know, after the the incident in 2009, you know, when his personal life just, like, exploded everywhere. Then he, they didn't Oh, you mean for, when he was, like, sleeping with. When he was sleeping with everyone in the country. Yeah. yeah. And his Remember wife that story? took a golf yeah, club yeah. and did something to a car or Yeah, chased him yeah. with a nine iron. Oh, chased him like with a nine. That's right. Yeah, I forgot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I think it's a nine iron. Yeah. Raj, I think it's a nine iron. But, it, you know, it took him a little while to get back from that. But ever since then, it's only been injuries. Like, even the chipping yips, a lot of that was just because he had pain shooting through his leg and he couldn't really get comfortable over the balls. So, I mean, if he's, like, pain-free, then he can probably get over that stuff. But he, he was over that by 2015, I remember, because he took a few months off to, like, work on his chipping. And he came back at the Masters, and he was fine. So Tiger hasn't gotten a restraining order out against you or anything, Jim, has he? No. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, next week, 
Bay Hill. He has won this tournament like 47 times, I think. Um, so yeah. is this, this is, this could be the, this could be the moment. Yeah, he should win it. I mean, <laughs> it's a golf tournament. My guy, it's hard to win a golf tournament. Yeah, no, he's won eight times. I mean, if he's, yeah. My guy, Justin Ray, noted that Phil Mickelson had gone 1,687 days between wins before he won the other week. And Sunday at Bay Hill will be 1,687 days since Tiger's last victory. I know. Just I was really hoping one one of the eight million reasons I was hoping that Tiger would win on Sunday was that he could one-up Phil Mickelson once again, who finally got his attention for coming back and having a great season. And Tiger would, you know, just win the next week and no one would care about Phil anymore. I have a couple of uh, golf takes that I've stored up from just not ever watching golf that are not necessarily Tiger-related, but I just have some some hot golf opinions. Jim can make yeah. them Tiger-related. That I want okay. to share. First of all, is there anything more awkward in all of sports television? We like to make fun of the Butler Cabin interview, but what about every week in the golf tournament where they invite the CEO yeah. of yeah. the company up to the booth and they they're always like, "Man, what a great isn't this a great field? This what a great event. What a great tournament." It's like I some people might say that that's bad, but I always look forward to like the awkward <laughs> rich guy uh, CEO talk. That's golf take number 1. Number That's two. That's a good take. That's a good take. Number two. I noticed that on the 16th green, the flagstick was an American flag, which led me to wonder why aren't all flags on flagsticks American flags? What is like at the Trump courses? Are the flags not American flags? If not, why does Donald Trump not support America? It's true. I think I think you're making a good point. I mean, why is golf insufficiently jingoistic here? Mm-hmm. That's I what mean, I'm saying. They why, don't even. Why does it have to only be the Ryder Cup? They don't play the national anthem before Every the, the golfers play. Yeah. All right. Final golf take. Yeah. So they were like really going hard on like there's some stretch at the end of this like rando golf course that they're playing the Valspar tournament at. It's a good golf course, by the way. I've played that course. All right. Just Jim getting is, that in there. Jim has played it. It's the Copperhead course at Innisbrook. They're calling the like tough stretch on this course the snake pit. And they have a bronze statue of steaks. I mean, <laughs> I have a photo you're... taken with that statue. That's how cool I am. All right, that's great for you. But like, <laughs> it seems, it seems like they're trying a little bit too hard with the branding there to like push that this thing is the snake pit. I mean, it's not. That's no amen corner. Right. I mean, you got to earn it. I mean, number number sixteen is a really call it. number sixteen is really hard hole, but seventeen and eighteen aren't that hard. But sixteen is one of the hardest <laughs> holes on tour. So basically. They're just giving a name here to make people think that it's really difficult. Yeah, they're trying to come it's up with branding. some sort of branding for the for the Copperhead I, course. And I don't I don't know this for a fact. I'm sure Jim just happens to know. But it seems like this is like the classic rule where you're not allowed to nickname yourself. And it just seems no. like they decided that they were going to name it the Snake Pit. And it just seems lame to like nickname your own stretch of difficult holes. I think they, they should have called it the Shark Tank and gotten some cross promotion because yeah. it is an NBC property. Isn't it? It is not. Oh, it is not. It's ABC. Shark Tank is ABC. Well, then yeah. they couldn't call it the Shark Tank. No. Yeah. Uh, maybe Greg Norman. Yeah. Maybe that could have been a site of one I of think, his famous collapses. I think they're doing they're doing a riff on at the, at uh, where they play the Honda Classic. They have the Bear Trap, which you, if anyone watched that, they mentioned the words Bear Trap about eight million times, and those are actually three really tough holes that, in fact, screwed up Tiger Woods' chances at that tournament. But these holes, I mean, aside from sixteen, it's not. The same thing. So is it always? Is the new trend to have three holes named? Are we naming <laughs> holes in threes now? I'm trying to think. That's I guess there's Amen Corner. There's Amen Corner. And yeah. then at, uh, at Quail Hollow, where they play a tournament in May, there's uh, the Green Mile. 
the Green Mile. Yeah, because it's three another like because you know, that's where people get executed. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> it's true. All right, always come up if they don't make a birdie, they execute them. I, I think we've covered it all, Stefan. I think we have. Jim Newell loves golf, works for Slate. What else do you need? What other credentials does one need to be on this podcast? Jim, thank you for coming. Thank you very much. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On Sunday in the National Basketball Association, the Golden State Warriors, who were playing without Steph Curry, he of the frequently injured ankle, lost by six to the Minnesota Timberwolves. Meanwhile, the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Warriors' opponents in the last three NBA Finals, looked atrocious defensively and getting blown out by Brooke Lopez, Julius Randle, Isaiah Thomas, and the LA Lakers. And by the way, meanwhile, in other parts of the NBA, the 52-14 and 14 Houston Rockets won by 23, and the 49-17 and 17 Toronto Raptors won by 26. The teams with the two best point differentials in the NBA played each other on Friday, and not surprisingly, it was a very good and closely contested game, with Toronto winning 108-105 to at home on Drake Knight to snap Houston's 17-game winning streak. Joining us to talk about whether these contenders are actually contenders is Kevin Arnovitz of ESPN. Uh, it's an amazing coincidence because it's actually Kevin Arnovitz's day on the podcast. We're going to have a video tribute for you later, Kevin. Uh, welcome to the show. A video tribute? On a podcast, yeah. It's going to be amazing. It, it's fantastic. We've had our best people on it. It's it's going to knock your socks off. Um, we are melding media. This is great. Let's start with the Raptors. They earned it, Kevin, by beating the Rockets the other day. Toronto is a team that seemed destined to always be good but not great. They won 56 games two years ago and got absolutely destroyed by the Cavs in the Eastern Conference Finals. Then they won 51 games last year, and they got absolutely destroyed by the Cavs, this time in the conference semis. Their two stars, Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan, are 31 and 28, respectively, on the wrong side of their primes, arguably. Uh, they didn't make arguably, any- arguably. That might be one of the things going on here. <laughs> okay. They didn't make any big offseason acquisitions, and yet it seems like they made a huge leap this year based on improvement by their own players that they've drafted and developed, which is a notion that to me at least, Kevin, feels extremely quaint in today's NBA. Yeah. Um you know, continuity is this this often regarded as the mother's milk of the NBA. And what I mean is, is that basketball, unlike baseball, which is essentially an individual sport and in football where, you know, it's a quarterback receivers game and you need some blocking. And I don't know enough about football to really beyond expand beyond that. But like basketball requires this telepathy. Um, when you have five players on the floor, um, it is much defensively as offensively, right, where it is just kind of player movement within the half court, knowing where your teammates like the ball, when, how, 
uh, and under what circumstances. Uh, knowing your teammates' liabilities defensively so you can send the help uh, defensively when, when the first uh, defender fails at the assignment, which usually happens in the NBA because it's really hard to guard opposing point guards and opposing big men who can score. And that if you keep a team together long enough, it can kind of marinate and, and over time – uh, p- p- perform at, at its full potential. And we've seen kind of instances of this over the years, right? The the, uh, the the Indiana Pacers from a few years ago didn't get to the promised land because of, you know, the Miami Heat's big three assembly, but like, you know, a really good team that really kept the core group together, Paul George and, you know, players, uh, the other players whom were, uh, none of who were all-star quality, but that by virtue of just keeping the thing together, and the San Antonio Spurs would be the best example of this, that you can actually have incremental improvement and when you're a pretty good team you can get to a very good team and there's this moment where you become an exceptional team the Stockton Malone Utah Jazz are a perfect example of this those guys actually didn't get to the finals to the very tail end of their careers when they were way past their prime but they kept the general group together around them kind of mixed and matched some people's uh, developed some bench talent uh, scored on a couple of draft picks and then you eventually can get there that, that rather than do this thing where you shuffle the deck and press the button and implode a roster that you that you can just kind of stick with it um improve upon what you have ditch bad ideas you know improve what works and i think that's what the raptors essentially have done no i'm not buying it i mean the the, it would have been totally logical to think that they had maxed out over the last two years like they did keep it together for a long time and DeRozan and lowry and the guys around them did meld and play together. And they were a really good, solid regular season team that was defeated brutally by the best player of his generation. And which that's was, what always happens Which in was the NBA. likely to happen regardless. So if that's the case, if, look, you can't get past LeBron James with who you've got as good as DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry had become, then what do you do? The NBA model, Joss, you're asserting is basically like you got to do something. You have to like clear some cap space, sign a big name, Instead of have a big two, we have a big three. Now we can compete. But is Toronto's model, Kevin, for lack of trying to do that? Or is it baked into the structure of who that franchise is, baked into the reality of geography and 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 contracts in, in the NBA? Yeah. I mean, I, I think we can kind of suspend the, oh, it's not a market, guys, and go, Chris Bosch doesn't like the bad cable or, or didn't have the good cable <laughs> in Toronto. His famous explanation in 2010 of, you know, what was lacking in Toronto. Um, you know, market's becoming a little less important in the league, and, and I, I think we're going to see it over time. It'll be really interesting to watch Donovan Mitchell over the next several years, and and, and this idea that a player isn't willing to stick around a you know, but meanwhile, by the way, Toronto is like the fifth largest market in the league. Um, so this, and I and I think uh, the notion that it's not cosmopolitan or it doesn't offer anything other That's than uh, some tax issues. Right. But let's let's move on from there. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I think one of the things happened. One is they draft very well and they develop those players. Um, Fred Van Vliet is an undrafted guard who is now their backup point guard, leading the most lethal unit in the league. I think I I don't remember the last time I checked, but I think the the Toronto bench. Uh, as of a couple of weeks ago, and I don't think it's gotten any worse, was, was I think, 32 points per 100 possession better? I, I don't know what the stat is this morning, but well, clearly it, it is still premier. Let's name um, those guys. Jakob Pertl, Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Vliet, DeLon Wright, and C.J. Miles. C.J. Miles. And that was right. kind of the and, point that I was getting at in my intro. It's like everything that you said is true, Kevin, but they've taken a huge leap this year because of that five-man unit that I mentioned five guys that maybe if they were in another franchise wouldn't 
played so well. Maybe the Raptors have developed them really well. But it's just like you couldn't have predicted that the internal improvement would have come from like the Jakob Pertle, Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Vliet triad. Yeah, and there's another thing at work here, and I, and I, I want to. I mean, I think a little credit goes to Raptors 905, which is their G League team. Uh, the Raptors kind of build a strategy where let, let's have our G League minor league team down the street, and we've seen a couple of NBA franchises do this. And what we'll do is, and Jerry Stackhouse actually was the coach um, for the, for the for that team. What we'll do is we'll sort of use it as an incubator. Uh, we'll run the same sets that we run up in Toronto. We'll develop talent. By the way, guys can practice here, and then we can, you know, uh, we can assign them for the night, go down there, play a game, come back, be practicing with a big squad, and essentially use it as kind of the minor league model, not unlike you know what baseball's done, except you know in the proximity of our own team. And so you have guys like you know Siakam, who were drafted, pretty raw talent. Uh, needs to, you know, I mean, I think one of the problems that happens with player development in the NBA and, and why, why, you know, there's sort of this talent drop off after the first or second tier is that it's always, if you think about any other profession, the, the 381st best basketball player in the world never plays a live game other than garbage time, right? So you, you have all these players who never, because, you know, by and large, you want DeMar Rosen on the floor 34, 35 minutes a night. You want Kyle Lowry on the floor 32 minutes a night. Um, you, you've got, you've signed Serge Ibaka. You're kind of committed to him. So if you're, if you're Siakam, sort of the, the next year model of, of Serge Ibaka, what are you going to do? And, and so I think, you know, that was part of it. They kind of built this development structure there, which allowed these guys to get really good. Fred Van Vliet was the star of the 905. Well, the logical graduation in previous years would have been, okay, you know, we have a pretty guy who we like in Kyle Lowry who we're committed to, um, you know, go go on your way. Some other team spots him, signs him. Well, now he, he sort of absorbed into the into the Raptors' overall structure. So I think that, that's been the other thing. And the final thing is, is I think they, they, they stopped playing an intensive brand of isolation basketball. Um, here's a way to let's, let's transition to the Rockets here. I mean, Kyle Lowry is playing the fewest minutes per game that he has played since I think 2013. Um, and down in Houston, which signed Chris Paul to help complement James Harden in the off season. Uh, he's touching the ball less than obviously he ever has in his career because he's on the same team as James Harden. Um, how have the Rockets in contrast to the Raptors, um, made themselves legitimate contenders to, uh, to, to dethrone Golden State? I mean, they've sort of constructed the perfect roster for the system that they employ. Unlike Toronto, they didn't have to kind of conform to anything. I mean, Mike D'Antoni has a very distinct philosophy. I sat with him for about an hour, I think the week before last, and kind of just kind of asking him just about general basketball philosophy. And, you know, he's somebody who kind of came into the league, identified a problem, which is teams are overcoached. That this idea that a coach could commandeer from the sideline every single possession – who, where the choreography, how the choreography is going to operate, who's going to get the ball, where, is just an antiquated notion that, A, players don't like it. They want to play basketball. I mean, so why not, not design a system that is fun for them? And that's kind of been the the D'Antoni ethic. It does require the same kind of sacrifice because it means that if you're a player who has played for coaches where you know when and how you're going to get your shots exactly, that's a real that, that that's a suspension of trust because it's like, well, when am I going to get my shots? Um, and then there are nights where you stand in the corner, you know, waiting for a three point attempt that never comes. But, you know, Harden and Paul really kind of took to it. 
And they're such great decision makers that you sort of put the ball in their hands. You have some basic principles. It's still a functionally a, a spread pick and roll offense that Mike D'Antoni ran for Steve Nash and Mike D'Antoni uh, and Amari Stoudemire in Phoenix. Um, but the pieces are a little different. If you watch the highlights of the Rockets, no team plays more simply and no team scores as easily as they do. And the thing that I find fascinating about them is that if you just thought, if if all you knew about Mike D'Antoni was he changed the game when he was the coach of the Suns because they played super fast, you would watch this team and be really confused because the Rockets don't actually play that fast. And they also don't pass the ball. Like they're second to last in the NBA and passes completed per game. Um, I think it's a testament to D'Antoni that he is able to adjust to his personnel and doesn't just impose his quote-unquote system on these guys. But the way the Rockets play is, I don't know if, it's kind of a combination, Kevin, of being like super modern and very antiquated at the same time. They basically play isolation with Harden or Paul and just run pick and rolls and surround them with three-point shooters. It's right. like they're, they're, super, super simple. They're going to attempt, they're on pace to attempt more three-pointers than two-pointers this season for the first time yeah, in NBA history. They are. Uh, they will. That, that will be the first time in NBA history that the team attempts more threes and more twos. But here's the thing about the passing stat. And I, I will never, as somebody who loves the continuity offense that San Antonio fashioned, I, you know, I would never criticize passing. You know, they would tell you, well, if you can find a good shot in two passes, why are you passing it four and five times? Sure. Like a pass essentially is an expression of failure, right? Like it's like, okay, we got it to this guy and well, he's covered. Okay. Try this guy. That's a good um, line way, that I think is deeply untrue, but I still, I still like no, it. No, no, that's what I'm saying. It, and I, and I, and I agree. I mean, I love passing and I think passing <laughs> generally finds the open guy, you know, the ball finds energy is what, what Dan Tony says. So I, I'm, I'm more being contrarian here. Passing is not an expression of, of, of it, it's, it's actually expression of sharing um, <laughs> it's uh but but my point is is i mean how many possessions do we see where it's hard and hard and hard and dribble 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 screen set and then what happens okay one pass to capella or oh wait you know capella's screen is just lethal and all Harden needs is the slightest pocket of space yeah. okay zero passes or pass to capella or hey defense collapses hardens driving sees the help coming one pass to the corner and so i think you know it's funny because i've been you know i'm having a lot of fun with this sort of the tracking data but one of the things i'm noticing is passes aren't necessarily a correlation to efficient offense yeah. and i think at times in utah it works really well right because there isn't a harden uh, on Utah. I mean, Donovan Mitchell's coming into his own, but he's just not there yet. Um, they require passes, and what they do is they just essentially flip the floor with their passes and are able to manufacture. But, you know, they don't have to manufacture anything in Houston. I mean, they just get it. I think the thing that we're seeing with the Raptors and the Rockets is both around how you play on the floor and around team building is that there really isn't a single way that you have to do it in the NBA. The notion that you need to go out and sign LeBron or get Durant. Um, you know, the last three years, that looked like a really good plan. But I think this year, what what we're seeing is that there is value in just trying to win. And there are a lot of teams that aren't trying to do that, both in the short term and the long term. But like, you know, it is looking like even if, you know, Steph Curry is at peak health, that the Rockets are going to give them like a really tough fight and a really good series. And it looks like, you know, Cleveland 
is not going to be able to fix their problems. Like if Cleveland makes it to the finals, it seems unlikely that they are going to make it to the finals by just like blitzing the entire Eastern Conference. They haven't played defense all year. So just like by virtue of trying to to win and not like being defeated by the fact that LeBron and the Warriors have just like romped through the league the last three years, like that philosophy seems to be paying off pretty well this year. Yeah, and I mean the Rockets are are pretty open about the fact that they constructed this roster to compete with the Warriors. That that was almost the entire objective. That they're not even being coy about it. And you know, they feel like they now have the and, and the defense is a big part of the uh, a part of the success in Houston. I mean, I I never thought this would be an 8, 9, 10th rank defense. I, I just didn't think the personnel was there. Um, you know, because, because nobody's really won an NBA championship without a top 10 defense, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and this is the thing. Uh, I mean, the Cleveland a couple of years ago, and it's Cleveland, right? So it's LeBron, which means that you just kind of throw away the the regular season ranking and say, okay, once April 14th rolls around, you know, this is a team that's capable of playing a top five brand of defense, which they did. Um, but yeah, defense is, is essential. And they've, they've, they've even kind of aped the Warriors in defensive strategy where they've become a switch-oriented team. In fact, I think they switch more often than the Warriors do even now. Um, and the idea is let's just bank on versatility. Let's have a bunch of guys that can guard a bunch of positions. Luke Bamute, P.J. Tucker, uh, Joe Johnson now. Um, you know, let's, 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 let's give our small guys the confidence to know that, Hey, look, you know, if you want to post up Chris Paul and you're the big man, cause you get him on the switch, guess what? 0.81 points per possession. Okay. That that's lousy offense. So they, they've sort of just embraced that. And I mean, look at the end of the day, I mean, that's, what's kind of funny about the, the, a finals, uh, Western conference finals between the Rockets and the Warriors. It might very well come down to who makes shots. Is it Andre Iguodala and Draymond Green from the perimeter or Luke Bamute and PJ Tucker? Uh, there obviously the stars will get theirs and there will be you know, supernova performances that win games in that series. But on its margins, I think that's going to be the game. And both teams have played that way, which is like, show me that your marginal kind of perimeters playing as big men can hit shots. Kevin Arnovitz is a writer for ESPN and he thinks passing is bad. <laughs> Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I wanted to do the traditional outro because you deserve that. But we're going to have you stick around for After Balls and you'll uh, know why in a second. Um, now it is time for the After Balls. And I'm going to read aloud the lead to a Zach Lowe Grantland story from 2013. It begins, true story. There is an NBA mascot convention every summer where about two dozen mascot performers get together, exchange best practices, show off their best highlights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They also give out various awards, sort of a mascot Oscars. For several years, the mascots also created a joke award, the Crapter. It was a plunger painted gold that they awarded to whomever experienced the worst blooper of the season, the worst accidental pratfall, the video skit that flopped, or some other low light the television cameras had caught. Now, I think maybe the inspiration for this was that the best gif of all time, which is the Raptors inflated mascot rollerblading onto the floor 
instantly falling onto its face and then having its tail sadly deflate and have the air go out of it. That was kind of a crapter moment. Um, but, you know, we talked about the good things with the raptors, and I think it's it's only appropriate that we did the crapter for our afterballs. But I'm, so I'm going to go first this week, Stefan. All right, then let me just say, Josh, what's your crapter? All right, Kevin. Yeah, now you're going you're gonna to find out why you're here. Uh, I'm going to praise a piece that you wrote a couple of years ago. Now, you've written so many good pieces, you're probably wondering what, what piece of mine is Josh Levine going to lavish praise on right now. Well, you'll find out in a second. Um, as I've taken to watching most sporting events on DVR, my viewing habits have changed. As I talked about earlier in the show, when I watch golf, I just fast forward through everyone who is in Tiger Woods. It's only sensible. <laughs> In baseball, I just fast forward through the whole season. No worries. I'll just read about the good stuff later. Uh, And in basketball, I sometimes fast forward when guys are taking their time dribbling up the court, but sometimes not. It depends on my mood and how quickly I'm trying to get through the game. But the one thing I will always fast forward through, Kevin, is the first free throw in a two free throw sequence. You've got a shooting foul. You've got Harden going to line for two because there's always a shooting foul with Harden going to the line for two or sometimes Harden going to line for three. Uh, I'm not going to sit there and twiddle my thumbs while my dude gets the ball from the ref and spins the ball and shoots the ball. It's almost certainly going in. And if it doesn't go in, it's not going to miss in an interesting way. Uh, There's not going to be a rebound opportunity since it's the first of two free throws. It's 99.9% sure that I'm not going to miss anything interesting because the only interesting thing that could happen is an air ball on the first of two free throws. And that's like three times a year. What about the fist bumping? Proposition. You know what? I can watch if there's a great if like Kevin Love goes to like a high five people and they don't high five him back. I'll watch the GIF later. It's fine. I I won't miss anything. Uh, In conclusion, the first of two free throws is an extremely skippable sports moment. So how to fix this? Eliminating free throws from basketball. It's not the entirely. It's not the worst idea in the world. I've thought about it a lot, but it's hard to come up with a plan of how you would eliminate free throws entirely. They would be workable. I will let the audience work that out on their own time. We're fast forwarding through this afterball. I'm a huge fan of a half measure that my very good friend Kevin Arnovitz wrote about in 2014 in a piece for ESPN.com headlined, Is One Trip to the Free Throw Line Enough? My answer, Kevin, is an emphatic yes. And do you want to explain this concept, Josh? It is, uh, it's a very easy one. Yes, the concept was this. I'm going to explain it by just reading from your article. The concept was this. A player fouled in the act of shooting or in a penalty situation would attempt only a single free throw. If that player was shooting a two-point shot or in a penalty situation at the time of the foul, the free throw attempt would be worth two points. If that player was fouled in the act of launching a three-point shot, he'd go to the line for a single shot worth three points. By doing so, and this was uh, as of 2014, we would reduce 47 free throw attempts per game in the NBA to wow. about 26. It's too bad baseball doesn't have free throws because that yeah. would be an easy way to shorten the game. <laughs> so, Kevin, the peg for this was that this was something that allegedly was being considered in uh, what was then known as the NBA D-League, the minor league. Um, how seriously was it being considered, actually? I mean, I think there was a, a point about four or five years ago where the D-League was truly, hey, let, let's try anything. Um, as the 
G now now the G League Gatorade has bought sponsorship. Um, my my sense is they've gotten a little more conservative that they actually see the G League as a product in and of itself, not merely an incubator for you know zany NBA reform ideas. So uh, you know I, they've backed off it is my understanding because uh, I I I, I kind of keep tabs on this one just because I just think it's so patently obvious that it would be a better sport if you could eliminate twenty six skills competition attempts you know, of twirling, as you say, and, and everything else. I mean, that is a lot of time. Um, and I, I, I don't know. I don't, I, I, at some point I was kind of using a stopwatch. I forget what it was, but I mean, you're talking about a substantial amount of dead time in an NBA game. Uh, now I, I, I kind of proposed this at the Sloan MIT conference, um, the sports analytics conference a few weeks ago. And, uh, you know, I, a mem- uh, kind of a representative from the league suggested that, hey, look, I, I think what we'd have to do in the final two minutes of a game is we'd have to go back to the more conventional rules, I guess, because the the variance, like in terms of teams trying to come back, et cetera, et cetera, it, it, it would it might eliminate they, they kind of have run the numbers and feel like it might eliminate uh, more comeback attempts. Well, and also or, or make hack, it less the, hack exciting. A, the hack a bad shooter would the the odds, the incentive would only go up. Right. And it's one shot. Guy makes fifty percent. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, would it go up because then you have one, one shot to make to make two points rather than you yeah, know the, the, most... li- the likelihood of him making one and getting the two points versus making both. Well, it, what it does, it's like the same thing as shooting threes. It like increases right. variance. So right. the most common outcome when you hack a fifty percent free throw shooter is one point. Um, the you know, in this scenario, it would average out to being one point, sure. but it would be you zero would have or zero or two. Right. And so um, you noted in your piece, Kevin, one interesting um, effect of this is that, um, you know, if you're a 75 percent free throw shooter, we would still in the system preserve and ones. And so there would be certain free throws um, that would be, be worth, worth one point. point. And so you yeah. could be a 75 percent free throw shooter, but not score 75 percent of the possible points if you happen to make more one-point free throws or two-point free throws. Right. Um, and, and that's for anything. I mean, the hack, problem with hack whatever is that it's just administered incorrectly so often. It's really something you're supposed to do when you're ahead, mm-hmm. right? Which is kind of, you know, it's insurance against the big run. Um, and yet it's often administered when teams are behind where it's a, it's a pretty bad strategy. Kevin, uh, I think this is, act- this is one of those ideas where um, – you know, there is the there's a thing in the basketball tournament about like the Elam ending and like capping the score, and that's like a really cool idea that's just like not gonna happen, probably. But this is an idea that's like both innovative, but I think could theoretically happen and would just be really good for fans and for the league. And so you need to keep pushing for this, man. Keep Yeah, no, I, keep I, I don't doing think it's all that radical. It isn't. It doesn't it doesn't change anything about the scoring system. It doesn't the, – the fundamental shot is the same. I think – here's how I think it maybe comes to fruition. Um, with the sort of attention span of Generation Z or whatever the next thing goes, I think it, we're going to get to a point where productions of any kind that are two hours and 20 minutes, be they motion pictures, be they sporting events, like we might get to a point where uh, NBA down the road another decade or so starts experiencing the same paranoia baseball does. If we just have to shorten these games. And it is just an easy 10 minutes. Like it is the easiest 10 minutes. Every ball is live. Um, and it's not just the time saved. It's the idea that 
if you look away, you're, you're cutting not out going the right it's, it's, 10 it's, minutes. It's your initial point, right, Josh, which is if I look away now, I'm not going to miss anything. The idea is to create entertainment where if I look away for a moment, I might miss something. I mean, that's going to be the entire ethic of, um, you know, inter- entertainment. And so, okay. That 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 becomes an easy reform to ensure that you don't have that dead time where I look away, I don't miss anything. Could players argue though that foul shots actually give them a blow, it give them a rest, and make them better yes. players down the road, down the for the rest of the game? To me, that's actually the best case for it, if, against it, which yeah. is that hey, Kevin, you're always talking about rest and recovery, and and we need to preserve energy. And these guys should be at peak performance in the fourth quarter of important games. That those moments actually serve as sort of the 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 rest in your interval workout. Thank you, Kevin. Good idea. Thanks for having me. All right, Stefan, what is your craptor? Before 9-11, when I lived in New York, I worked for the Wall Street Journal across the street from the World Trade Center. At lunch, sometimes I would walk a couple of blocks to one of those little New York spaces with a few trees and some benches and tables that get to be called parks, and I would play backgammon. The chess hustlers were farther north in Washington Square Park, where I also cut my teeth at Scrabble. Backgammon had a lock on this little patch of blacktop in lower Manhattan. I considered and still consider myself a good casual player. I played a ton of backgammon as a kid in the summer in Greece, me against some old dude in a fisherman's cap at a sidewalk cafe neo in the village where my father grew up. I move the checkers intuitively, but unlike in Scrabble, I've never studied backgammon, never learned the probabilities or analyzed positions. In the park, I'd get hustled for 10 bucks at lunch. It was money well spent. I read over the weekend about the death of Paul McGrill, one of the greatest backgammon players of all time, at age 71. Like most board game experts, McGrill was a math genius. His parents were a ballet historian and an architect who socialized with James Agee and Arthur Schlesinger and Eero Saarinen. He grew up on the Upper East Side, attended Dalton and Exeter, and spent summers on Cape Cod where he went deep sea fishing with Norman Mailer. McGrill went to NYU and then studied probability as a graduate student at Princeton and in the 1970s taught math at a college just outside of New York. That's when he started playing backgammon at Manhattan Games Parlors, and eventually he quit teaching. By the late 1970s, McGrill was a backgammon and media celebrity. He wrote a best-selling how-to book and landed a weekly column in the New York Times. He had a nickname bestowed on him, The Human Computer, and one that he bestowed on himself, X-22, which came from a tournament that he played against himself with 64 imaginary competitors, X-1 through X-64. X-22 was the winner. In 1978, McGrill was hired by a Saudi sheikh to provide a few weeks of personal training and some side games for cash in the kingdom. Backgammon was having such a moment that 60 Minutes did a piece about the game, during which Dan Rather asked McGrill about the Saudi gig. How did you get into that job? Well, so I, I just happened to run into this uh, sheikh at a uh, discotheque, Studio 54 in New York, and I had no idea who he was, and he had no idea who I was. And I played the guy one game, he said, I want you to come to Saudi Arabia with me, work it out with my, you know, uh, lackey or whatever. <laughs> so uh, that's where I'm going. Yes, Josh, a backgammon pro met a Saudi sheikh at Studio 54. I wonder if Pele and the Cosmos were there too that night. I might have said George Plimpton, but Plimpton had already played a blindfolded McGrill as a promotion for a big tournament. The New Yorker, of course, wrote about it. The piece is filled with dubiously perfect quotations and Plimpton shouting, a la table, 
to announce the match. McGrill won. In 1979, Sports Illustrated profiled McGrill, who was then the world champion. The eight-page feature portrays him, as you might expect, an obsessive brainiac who would spend days alone in his red-walled, television-free Manhattan apartment and then play backgammon for 72 hours straight or party for days or take a whirlwind trip to Chicago or Vienna or Los Angeles or Milan to participate in a tournament during which he will talk nonstop and go without sleep. The eccentric games genius is a familiar character to me, and among the games that produce eccentric geniuses, backgammon is the one most like Scrabble. Both contain an element of luck, both are about board position and probability, and both are deceptively complex. Except for the Saudi shakes and the upper-class sensibilities and high-stakes events, reading about Paul McGrill was familiar. He articulated what I have felt and what others in Scrabble have articulated so well. The idea of a board game as a refuge, a place governed by rules of clear right and wrong, where the arbitrariness and bullshit of the real world don't apply. It reminded me of my Scrabble friend Lester Schoenbrunn, whom I wrote about for Slate after his death a few years ago. But what separates the greats like McGrill from patzers like me is the understanding that they possess the knowledge to serve a higher purpose, to recognize the pattern, solve the puzzle, unlock the secret, deconstruct, and change the game. Quote, I'm always at war with luck and disorder, McGrill says in that SI story. I'm always trying to impose my will over the randomness of the dice, over what seemingly has no structure. I may be sounding sort of melodramatic, but what I'm trying to do in backgammon is create order out of chaos. Thank you, Stefan Fatsis. And that is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. This week, I would like to endorse Slate's parenting podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting. Every week, Gabe Roth, Rebecca Lavoie, and Carvel Wallace discuss all aspects of parenting from toddler to teens. They answer listener questions, share their own parenting triumphs and fails, and talk through parenting issues in the news. Get it every Thursday, wherever you find your podcasts. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, who before Brooke Lopez did it last week, was the last center to score more than 25 points in a game with no rebounds, having done so in 1967. Congrats, Zelmo, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.